be looking at Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. Listen, you people of Israel, listen to this funeral song I am singing. The virgin Israel has fallen never to rise again. She lies abandoned on the ground with no one to help her up. The sovereign Lord says, when a city sends a thousand men to battle, only 100 will return. When a town sends a hundred, only 10 will come back alive. Now this is what the Lord says to the family of Israel. Come back to me and live. Don't worship at the pagan altars at Bethel. Don't go to the shrines at Gilgal or Beersheba. For the people of Gilgal will be dragged off into exile and the people of Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Come back to the Lord and live. Otherwise, he will roar through Israel like a fire, devouring you completely. Your gods in Bethel won't be able to quench the flames. You twist justice, making it a bitter pill for the oppressed. You treat the righteous like dirt. It is the Lord who created the stars, the Pleiades and Orion. He turns darkness into morning and day into night. He draws up water from the oceans and pours it down as rain on the land. The Lord is his name. With blinding speed and power, he destroys the strong, crushing all their defenses. How you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellions. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. So those who are smart keep their mouths shut, for it is an evil time. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper, just as you have claimed. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet, the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God of heaven's armies says. There will be crying in all the public squares and mourning in every street. Call for the farmers to weep with you, and summon professional mourners to wail. There will be wailing in every vineyard, for I will destroy them all, says the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see you guys. Uh, as, uh, as Chris so kindly introduced, my name is Phil, uh, and... Uh, I, I really, really deeply love this church. Um, I've been on the peripherals of this church for, for 20 years, serving it just down the road in North Richmond there at Hawkshire Valley, and uh, have always been incredibly blessed by the, uh, not just the ministry out of this church, but the individual people who have sowed so much into my life. Um, I consider Jonathan a brother. Uh, he's someone who uh, we both kind of stepped into our senior pastor roles uh, around the same time and uh, we've just been able to walk shoulder to shoulder and uh, just have that mutual encouragement. And so uh, to stand here this morning uh, is, a, is a real blessing. Uh, I was just 
thinking Phil, Phil and I went to school together and um, to stand here and minister together after 20 years and 20 years ago, that was a very unlikely scenario, not because of you, more because of me. Um, Phil had himself together as far as I knew. But um, honestly, that's, that's an incredible joy, man, to be able to, we sort of had these parallel journeys and yeah, so that's, that's awesome. I think the first time I met Chris was when he was at Currajong and, and he asked Mark Chapel, who was our pastor at the time at Hawkshire Valley, to come and preach an Easter service because I think you're away. He said, no, but I'll send my youth pastor. And um, this young, tattooed, weird-looking kid shows up, and I don't think the church knew what to do with me. Um, <laughs> but the last decade plus of uh, just walking with you, Chris, more recently, the funeral world of just being able to grieve with families and t- shoulder to shoulder has been just an incredible blessing. You've never been anything less than a huge encouragement for me, mate. And, um, you know, even looking around and just faces and, you know, Paul and Esther, you guys are so foundational for me and my faith um, all those years ago. I think the first ever life group was with you guys in your house. So, you know, that's the beauty of the church, isn't it? Like, we can all come together and, um, and have these incredible journeys and, and encourage each other and weep together and laugh together. And um, so I just, it is, it is truly a joy to, to be here with you this morning. Uh, when Jonathan asked me, a couple of months ago, do you want to come and, and share? Um, at that point, I was sort of in a six-month holding pattern of preaching. I decided when I finished up at Hawkshire Valley, I wanted to just take time and, uh, and hold off preaching just, just to really seek God and, and allow him to do some work in that. And, uh, but when Jonathan asked me, um, and this sort of fell right at the end of that six, six months, I thought, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm keen for that. Uh, and uh, then he said, we're doing Amos, and I thought, okay, Less keen, but still I'll show up. And then, um, then he handed me Amos 5, and he said, just talk about repentance. And I thought, why did I sign up for this at all? Um, it's the old hospital pastor the guest speaker gets. So if you're listening, Jonathan, thank you very much. Um, but, um, but in saying that as well, this is only the second time I've preached in six months, so there may be a few, a few cobwebs and things, so, uh, so bear with me. But let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good. We thank you for this moment in time where we can come together as your people simply for the purpose of worshipping, of hearing from you, of being encouraged and challenged in equal measure. And I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would just just do a work in our hearts. That as we open your word, that there would be a real sense, not of... uh, cheap sort of warm fuzzies or you know moments of guilt but God deep work that only you can do we pray pray for heart transformations God I pray for every person here wherever they might be in their faith journey that in this moment that they might move closer to you God so we love you we worship you and we just give you this moment now in the mighty name of Jesus amen Amos 5, a call to repentance. I'm not going to come and explain the context of all this. I'm assuming that's all been done. But I I think what's really important in this, uh, with what what we see here from Amos, which was just read, uh, is that this was a a funeral song, and it says it there at the beginning of of Amos. And we need to realise that this didn't bring Amos great pleasure. He wasn't coming from a place of, well, look at all you heathen pagans. I'm going to condemn you and shout you down. This guy was genuinely grieving 
for those to whom God had called him. In that culture all those years ago, in that part of the world, we can be fairly certain that uh, Amos would have adapted some of the grieving practices or the mourning practices of, of, of that culture. There's every chance he would have shaved his head, that he would have donned the sackcloth, that he would have been kneeling in ashes and weeping and crying out to the point of wailing. And he cries out to Israel and he says, you are like a rotting corpse. And I'm not taking glee out of that. I'm not excited about that. I'm not excited about the fact that your men are going to go to war and only 10% of them are going to come home. That is a deep, deep grief for Amos. And you would already know that in this context, it was a time of, of affluence and, and, and of, of military success. And, and he came in and, and he was that guy who really brought the mood down. And in that moment, the people of Israel didn't want to hear what he had to say because they didn't realize that they were living the last of these good days. And so he brings the mood down. I believe from a place of, of deep grief. This guy who, as you would know, was just a fig-picking shepherd, all of a sudden began to speak words that challenged the, uh, the comfortable sensibilities of the time in which they found themselves. It's important for us to know that what Amos did was, a, was an act of love. It was an act of love. This book, uh, this, this part of Amos is kind of divided into three sections. The first one being that of lament. The second one being that of, a, uh, of an invitation, a call to repentance. And then the last couple of verses of this section, it begins a conversation around judgment. Now, just this week, Jonathan got in touch and asked me to come and again next week. And so I'm going to touch less on those last two verses and sort of bring them a bit into my message next week, but we'll have a quick look. But we're going to focus mainly today on this idea of lament and invitation. So as I, as I just sort of mentioned, the image that Amos paints here in verse 2, when he talks about the virgin Israel that has fallen, he's painting an image of a, of a corpse, of a, of a young woman struck down in her prime. With all the potential, all of life ahead, she's struck down in her prime and there's this rotting corpse. Horribly offensive. Imagine someone coming in here and, and saying that to each of us. We would be horrified and offended on every level. And then he goes on and he talks about these young men going off to war. And, you know, my generation doesn't understand war. More and more as time goes on, most of us haven't faced that reality. But, we can, but even, if you, even if you have, you can understand that with only 10% of young men returning, that is absolutely horrendous. The grief that would have permeated every part of that culture and that society if that were to come true, which we know ultimately it does. So who is this lament about? Well, it's about Israel. And while I don't stand here this morning to profess that we are Israel, I do stand here and say that we are the people of God. And what we can glean from this is a realisation of God's heart, of God's hope 
for his people and of God's sense of justice. And thankfully, in this time we live in, his incredible grace. While this is written to Israel in a specific time and a specific place, as the people of God, we need to take heed, we need to listen, we need to understand that God is a jealous God. And that God's heart is for us. But there is a desire not that we would just live life in, in accordance with our carnal desires or, or seek out the, the greatest pursuits in this moment so that we feel good, but in fact that our lives are a holy sacrifice to Him. That's the invitation. So how do we take this from all those thousands of years ago in Israel in a context that we do struggle to understand and move it to here in 2022? Over the last few years, the world has faced a a, a crazy time with COVID and and I think it has revealed much about the church universal. As a pastor myself navigating that time, about halfway through last year, I came to a place where I I was constantly grieving grieving the losses of, of that season. But as that sort of carried on over a period of time, I began to realise that I was grieving for things that were never really about God in the first place. That I wasn't grieving things that were holy, I was, I was grieving my own ego. Like, it, it doesn't feel good as a pastor when all of a sudden people don't log on to Zoom or your live streams. Even worse, when you, when you get so excited about being able to regather and maybe half of the church is there. Those are places of grief. But I remember my prayer changed about mid-last year and I began to pray, God, that, that you would teach me to grieve for the fact that I ever grieved for those things in the first place that these things that have become markers of my success that were no longer there, what it looked like to lay them down, what it looked like to have a very honest look at who we were as a church and who the church is right across the board. I think that's extremely important. You know, during that time across, across churches, there was, a, there was a significant amount of people who just, who just dropped off. And I would grieve their lack of attendance rather than grieving our lack of discipleship. The fact that, well, hang on, maybe, maybe I need to take some responsibility in this. Because I've had people hanging on to the fringes for a long time, but they've never caught the majesty and beauty of God. They've caught community They've caught some good stuff, some things that in the right context are right and good and holy, but they haven't captured or been captured by the heart of God. They haven't stepped into his heart and and that transformative journey. And so I began to grieve, hang on, what what does that mean in terms of what we've prioritised? What does that mean in terms of how we've done discipleship? I noticed during that season, and I'm sure it was the same here, there was a dependence on leadership. Uh, that everything sort of came down to that sort of handful of people at some points. And again, just realising, hang on, the, the culture we've created in the West, 
that has taken the ability or the, the joy of, of, of pastoring out of the hands of each individual person who follows Jesus and made about a handful of people at the sort of top of the pyramid. Like, you've got to grieve that. Grieve, grieving the fact that people who were more difficult, some of those people who took more time, took some patience, who were hard to understand, who were hard to connect with, realising that if it was only up to a couple of us to really continue to walk with them. And what did that say about, about who we are as the people of God? We know that during COVID, for, for, for many of us, and for even for some high-profile Christian leaders, the true nature of our hearts was revealed, the true things that we held um, sort of in that, in that place of, of real sincere worship was, was revealed. It was hard, but it was right. There's a call to become the bride of Christ again. It was beautiful in all of its splendour. Verses 10 to 13 of, of Amos chapter 5, uh, it, it kind of talks about how, again, the people of God, they hated honest judges, they, they despised the truth, they trampled the poor, they, they lived in their houses, sort of isolated themselves from those who were going without. And again, not necessarily as a result of COVID, but again, we can see that as the church of God, this too, at times, has become all too familiar. We need to consider how is our life different to the lives of the people who don't know Jesus? What does our life look like in the context of this culture which is running in the other direction to what the kingdom of God invites us into? I passed a friend of mine in the, uh, over in the States who I caught up with recently. We are having lunch and he said, um, he said that during COVID, God has shown him uh, something that was kind of really transforming his ministry. He said this, my paraphrase, but he said, I used to think we gathered people in order to teach them how to live and then send them out. Right, pretty fair enough, pretty standard sort of rhetoric around churches. But he says, now I realise that we gather because we have had a revelation of God's kingdom and families as natural expression. So what he's saying is that the gathering, to the, the committed gathering, even when, it, even when it's maybe not serving your purposes or whatever it is, that committed gathering becomes this beautiful place because it's part of the revelation of who we are as God's people. It's not, it's not just sort of the beginning, like intro, you come and you hear stuff and then you go out and oh, I might need that, I might not. It's like, no, this is actually part of a genuine revelation of God's heart is to gather with his people to encourage and to challenge and to worship and to pray and to open the word and to discuss it and to share and to all of those beautiful, rich things that happen in a healthy church context. That was really helpful for me. I mean, I'm, I'm in this season where I'm not pastoring right now, so, I'm not, uh, so I can kind of sit and ruminate on, on something like that. But then we move into verse 3. So he's kind of laid that, that reality of, this, of Israel as this, this corpse as God's people, as his corpse. But then he begins to talk about a city sending thousands of men to battle, only hundreds coming back, hundreds to battle, only 10 
coming back alive. Again, a tragic picture. And we know that Israel did have to go to battle. And what we see here with Amos is that the, the young men of Israel had to go to battle because of the unfaithfulness of their parents. We, we, need, to, we need to grasp that. The young men of Israel had to go to battle and get absolutely obliterated because of the unfaithfulness of their parents. What battles do our young people have to fight because of our unfaithfulness? It's a really hard question. It's a hard question as a father with three young kids. It's a hard question as a leader and a pastor. But what battle do our young people have to fight because we were unfaithful? Now, we know our young people will need to fight battles. That's how we grow. That's how we conviction comes. There's battles they're going to fight. But there are battles that they fight that have a, a horrendous mortality rate because we weren't willing to fight those battles first. As people who've come before them, as the people of God. Statistically, they say in, in sort of the Western church, about two-thirds of young people ages between 17 and 21 leave the church. So we're not quite at 90%, but, but two-thirds is, I'm not good at maths. You were saying you were good at maths. What's two-thirds? 70 something? 66%. So yeah, I, was, I was close. I was within 10. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's alarming, isn't it? And I wonder how much of that is because we haven't been willing to live faithfully the call of God. Now, I feel bad sort of coming in and saying these things, but I was given Amos 5. I don't know how else to preach it, so I'm sorry. But, but it's a really important question. What price are, you, are our young people paying for our faithfulness, unfaithfulness? Generations to come. There are things that are, are wiping out our generation. The accessibility of, of online material, that of sexual exploitation, and um, even video games, and things like that, they're wiping out generations of godly men in particular. That will to fight is being channeled through onto a screen where you're saving the world with pixelated bits and pieces. It has no bearing on anything, yet that captures a young man's desire to fight for something and stand for something. The, the access of, of pornography and things like that, that we need to be fighting those battles. And the question I have for you is, what is the extent of faithfulness that our young people see in you? Is it merely coming to church and sitting here on a Sunday, singing songs, listening to words, having polite conversations, and then going home? Or are they seeing you living a faithful life on your knees, making decisions of integrity and character, creating spaces where justice um, is realised and where people are, are able to flourish from all walks of life, where there is a marked difference in how you live your life. Because I think if we can't wrestle with that question, then I think this warning to Israel will be a warning that comes true for us. 
What battles do we need to fight in our faithfulness now so that our young people don't need to fight them in the future? Often people will look outside the church and they'll see an authenticity that they don't see in the church. Why? Because they see the world embracing their sins. Proud of their sins, but they see those they look up to spiritually, not necessarily overcoming sin, simply learning how to hide it. What, who, who would you rather be a part of? What, what, what would you rather uh, sort of, uh, I guess, hitch yourself to, a, a community that is in denial of who they are? Somebody says, you know what? We know we're messed up, but we're just embracing it. We're going for it. Our young people need to see authentic, integrity-filled pursuit of God. Or we too will suffer the same Horrendous outcome. So what's Amos' lament? That the bride of Christ has often become something that looks nothing like Christ. This is obviously our, in our context, to sort of bring it into our place. So Amos was that the people of God look nothing like Yahweh. And that our children are walking away. Our children are paying the price for our unfaithfulness. That's worth wailing over. That's worth getting down in the dust and grieving, crying out and weeping. You know, in Western society, we do not know how to lament. We don't really know how to grieve. In fact, we prefer it if people grieve far away from where we can see them because you don't know what to do. And in a situation like this, if someone was to make a public proclamation against the world, what would they do in our culture? We would soften it. We would make compromises. We would say, hey, if you truly have compassion on that person, on that situation, you would actually soften the message to sort of embrace them. But Amos doesn't soften anything. But yet he carries this beautiful sense of lament, of realising what is at stake, of holding the goodness and the grace of God in tension with the wickedness of the world. And this is what we get. So we, we, we need to come to a place where we learn to lament and lament well, where we learn to grieve the things that were once holy and right, which have gone far from the heart of God. We see lament happen all through scripture. We see, um, obviously, we just, um, Amos. We see Moses lamenting. Paul, Jesus, they all lament without compromise. They all grieve with a desire to stand on truth and to speak truth no matter what the cost. I think sometimes we don't cry out to God, we don't lament, we don't grieve because we feel like we've got to have it all together. My friends, God is not scared of your sadness. He's not scared of your fears or your doubts or your anger, maybe even your occasional swear word. He's not scared of those things. 
He's not scared of you doubting and crying out to him and saying, God, where are you? Why does this hurt so much? I had a text exchange with a friend the other day who in the last few years has gone through horrendous loss and, and they wrote this text that was, that was just heartbreaking to read but it was so right. Theologically so wrong but so right in that moment of grief. And to say, you know what? Yep. I hear you. I didn't need to correct anything. I didn't need to pile seven verses and go, no, this is, I hear you. The loss you've experienced, I don't know how you reconcile that right now. We've got to become okay with that place of lament and grief because there is so much healing and hope when we begin to see God in that. And God's heart isn't that we don't do that. Our God, God's heart is that we come to him in the midst of it. So don't just suddenly jump on Google and try and find the, the latest pop psychology to deal with our issue. We actually turn to him. We don't turn to the vices that may have gotten us through in our previous life before we knew Jesus. We actually turn to him. That's when a, when a, when a lament becomes holy. When we allow it to move us towards God in all of the complexity and all of the pain and the doubt and the anger. He can handle it. And in the midst of our grief, in the midst of the chaos of our world, we come, as Amos did, to a place of invitation where we are invited, as it says here in Amos 5, to come back to me and live. The new King James says, seek me and live. That is the invitation and it is a joyous one and it is a beautiful one and it is a right one and that is what allows our laments to be life-giving and holy because it brings us to that point of invitation where we discover true abundant life. John 10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal and destroy but I have come that you might have life and life in abundance. Seek me and live. Proverbs uh, 23? No, I don't think it's that. Um, there is a way before every man that seems right, but it leads to death. Chris, what's the reference to that? Oh, you don't know. Yes. <laughs> Proverbs 23, we'll go with that. <laughs> but that, like that, this, is, this, is, this is the invitation. There is a way that seems right, but the thief will come and kill, steal, and destroy in that. But I have come to give you abundant life. It's beautiful. And it's an invitation for repentance. So here we go. Thought, we thought we'd gone heavy now. Now we're getting into repentance. But repentance is beautiful. Repentance is, is beautiful because repentance is more about who we're turning to than what we're turning from. Now, I'm not saying what we're turning from doesn't matter. It matters and it's, it's it deadly. The wages of sin are death, says in Romans, that the wages of sin are death. So this isn't a belittling of sin, but what I'm saying is when we truly understand repentance, it's actually more about God than it is about who we used to be. And that's why it's good news. That's why it's news that is full of grace and love and hope. But Amos says something really interesting here. He, he tells us, you know what? Coming to God, worshipping God, it needs to look different to what it did before because he says come back to me and live at the end of verse 4 
which, which essentially, um, when you kind of look at the sort of original language, it's talking about hearing the word of, words of prophets and, and, and worshipping God. So there's sort of two parts of that idea of seeking or coming back to God. But he says, but don't worship at the pagan altars of Bethel. Don't go to the shrines of Gilgal or Bathsheba. So he sort of says, come back to me, come back to God and worship, but don't do it how you've done it before. Again, another sort of level of offence in a lot of ways. But if you look at this place of Bethel, which had hugely significant uh, meaning for the people of God, the people of Israel. We know that Abraham worshipped there. We know that this is the place where, where Jacob became Israel, uh, hugely significant. Uh, Jacob called it the, uh, the house of God and the, the, the gate of the skies. You know, like this place is amazing. Uh, we know that judges held court there. We know that the Ark of the Covenant, in fact, spent some time there at Bethel. We know that sacrifices uh, were made to Yahweh. Uh, we know that, 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 that armies would go there and seek God before battle and then go back after they'd lost and be like, what's going on? And, and cry out and lament. Uh, we know that the prophet Samuel, he prophesied there. We know that uh, the Israelites worshipped there. They were reminded of Yahweh's presence there. This place was hugely significant. But unfortunately, what had happened was King Jerob. Oh man, don't want to tongue tie Jeroboam set up a golden calf there. And it became a place of pagan worship. But Yahweh, the worship of Yahweh wasn't removed. So they'd actually go and they'd worship Yahweh and they'd worship these pagan gods. And so they kind of had this, this double sort of um, worship experience. It's called syncretism where they sort of brought the two together. Now, they hadn't, finished, they hadn't stopped worshipping Yahweh there, but we know from Amos that the presence of Yahweh had left there. It was no longer a place where he was encountering his people. It was a place where they were simply making lots of noise. And what we know from Amos here is that what for generations before had been a place of holy worship had become an, a place, a, a, had become an idol for the current generation. Often when we think of repentance, we talk about it being going back to the good old days. When I was a kid, this is how we did it. We've got to get back to that. And it's actually not that. Because with each generation, we carry burdens and bondages and, and griefs and wounds that, that influence our worship and the way we, we live our life and it's, it's so complex. And so the goal isn't to go back to how we did it or how our parents or grandparents did it or how we did it when our, when our movement began or the whole reason why this movement began was this or this church was planted was for this, we've got to get back that. No, 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 repentance is not about that because what happens is we idolise what's gone before which may have been holy and right in that moment but in this moment, has become an idol, has become the thing in which we're seeking salvation or hope instead of seeking that with the heart of God. Does that make sense? Uh, it's, there's, there's many examples of it, particularly in the Old Testament. One that comes to mind is Moses and the staff, um, the staff that, that he used to, um, uh, to, like in front of Pharaoh, cast it down, became a snake, um, parted the Red Sea, turned the uh, Nile, Nile to... Um, to blood, all those things 
was the very thing that, that he used that ultimately meant that he didn't go into the promised land when he tapped the, the rock with the, with, the, um, with the staff. What was once something used by God and holy had become an idol which actually undermined his relationship with God. So we've got to, we've got to be really aware of that. What was once beautiful and holy and right, like Bethel, like all these things, like church traditions, different things. Going back to the repentance doesn't always mean going back to that. Repentance means discovering the heart of God and the majesty and the beauty of who God is. So that's one misconception about repentance. The other one, I believe, is that repentance becomes more about avoiding sin than knowing Yahweh. So repentance is more about what I'm running away from rather than who I'm running to. And we wonder why we stay in these patterns of sin and brokenness and bondage. I've been coming to church for 30 years, I'm still struggling with this. It's because we're so focused on what we're trying to get away from instead of who we're going after, who we're running to. Now, I believe conviction of sin is an incredibly important part of, 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 uh, of coming to Christ. Don't mishear me for a second, but I tell you right now, there is a lot of conviction of sin out there in the world. I spend hours every week down here at Windsor Jail. I run chapel service in there. I connect with the guys. Some of the, some of the guys who've come out, they're some of my closest friends. And I tell you, that jail is full of men who are convicted of their sins, not just through the courts, but in their own hearts. There's a conviction. They're going, I'm messed up. They know it. So it's, it's about saying, okay, what is it that, what's a, what's that what's, what is it they're going to run towards? So repentance is not about avoiding sin. Sorry, repentance is, repentance is not just about avoiding sin. It's about knowing who it is we're running to. For too long, repentance is, has been about behavior modification. So you come into church and, you know, we'll polish you up, you swear a little bit less, you, you make good decisions, or at least on the outside you're making good decisions, you're going to do fine. And that's, 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 that's tragic. Because it's not about behavior modification, it's about heart transformation. This is the repentance we see right from Genesis through to Revelation, right here in Amos, we see a repentance that calls us to look to him. You know, I often say in conversations with my wife, Casey, and about our kids, like, I don't want to raise well-behaved kids. It's probably bad to say that. But this concept, I, I want to raise kids with conviction. And if my kids are going to grow up, and, and I hope and pray every day that one day they will grow up and they will make, it, make, make, make that journey towards Jesus for themselves, that they'll live out a life of passionate, mature discipleship. But if my kids are going to do that, then they're not going to be well-behaved in our world. If all I ever teach my kids is follow the rules, then they're not going to follow Jesus. Because step out there and you want to see what the rules are? We're flying in the face of them. So we've got to be careful that our conversations with people isn't about, you know, just toe the party line, do the right thing, because that, 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 that changes. I want my kids to be men and women of conviction have had a Holy Spirit heart transformation. And that means sometimes 
they're going to do the wrong thing. Because if you're living for Jesus, authentically out there in the world, there's many, many times where you're going to have to do the wrong thing. And that's only increasing. I can only imagine what it's going to be like for my three, five, and seven-year-old in 10, 20, 30 years. I can only imagine. So it's not about behaviour modification. And, and so I try and create this, try and paint this image of who Jesus is for my kids. And I get it wrong all the time. I try and show them through how I am as a father, the heart of our father. I get it wrong all the time. But I'm quick to apologise. I'm quick to get on their level and say, hey, man, I messed up like you. But we serve a perfect God. That, for me, is a conversation worth having over and over and over. I love that here Amos chooses to jump in verse 8 to, it is the Lord who created the stars. And he starts talking about constellations. We saw that amazing video before. I love Isaiah 40, 12, 26. It talks about he holds the ocean in his hand. He, he measures the heavens with his fingers. He marches the stars out one by one, naming them one by one. Like this is the God we serve. This is the God we run to when we understand repentance. And you might be sitting there now in, in a place of um, confusion or, or spiritual dryness or, or bondage or whatever it might be. And you might be going, how can I ever overcome this? Well, can I encourage you that the, if, if God can hold the ocean in his hand and, and measure the universe with the expanse of his hand, then his hand is enough to pull you out to sustain you in the midst of whatever it is you face. He is enough. And I love that Amos jumps in here and begins to talk about how very big our God is. In the New, uh, the New King James Version, uh, in, in this version it says he turns darkness into morning. In, in the New King James it says he turns a shadow of death into morning. And there's echoes of Psalm 23. I love that. So this is the invitation to go after a God who is so much bigger than we can comprehend. What image of God are we painting with our lives and with our words and with our faith and with our righteousness? Are we merely towing a party line, trying to be good, swear less, get by? Or are we going hard after this amazing, majestic God? Our message should not be about what we're running away from in its entirety, but also who we're running to. In Amos's grief, this is where you're at. This is what you need to run from. He says, but this is who God is. And he is amazing and beautiful and wonderful and there are no words. Scripture tells us to fear God. It doesn't tell us to fear the devil. It tells us to fear God. So our, 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 when we're talking to people about Jesus, we, we shouldn't be creating this, this straw man that, 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 that binds them up in fear. Instead, we should be pointing them to the one who gives life and life in abundance. And unlike the people of Israel at this moment that Amos is talking about, we get to run to Jesus. Like that is really good news. We get to run to Jesus. Hebrews 12 talks about he is the author and perfecter of our faith. One translation talks about he's the champion of our faith. 
We know in the first chapter of John that everything was created by him and through him and for him, that he always was and always will be. Like this is who we get to run to. The one who Isaiah, when he's in the throne room of God in that vision, talks about his his trail fills the whole temple. He's the one who stood quiet before his accusers. Unjustly accused, unjustly murdered and crucified so that you and I could be free from the wages of sin. So that you and I would have somebody to run to and to run with. The one who in Revelation talks about the blazing, his eyes like blazing fire, his voice like rushing water and his face shining like the sun. The one in Philippians 1 or 2 who didn't think it, uh, didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to, but instead humbled himself, became a servant, gave up his divine privileges and died a sinner's death on the cross. And who when he was on that cross, looked down at the very people murdering him and he said, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. And then three days later, he rose again. And he sits at the right hand of the Father and he promises that one day he will return and he will reconcile everything to himself and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's who we're running to. That's the picture we get to paint, not just with our words, but with our lives. That's the righteousness and the faithfulness that we are called to, and it's, it's amazing. He snatched back the keys to death and the grave, and he declared emphatically, death is dead. Death, where is your sting? So in this passage, as I close, Amos give some specifics for the people of God. Spread throughout verse 1 to 17, Amos' invitation to the remnant, to those people who he believes are still wanting to hear from God and live faithfully, he says, seek to know the Lord. He says, seek to know Yahweh. Intentionally, purposefully, seeking out the character and nature of God. He says, seek forgiveness. This is that journey of repentance before God, of crying out. He says, hate evil and love what is good. So often in our culture, and for me too, I'm entertained by evil in what I watch and what I engage with. Why is it that evil still entertains the people of God? Hate evil, love what is good. He says, establish justice. Not justice on the world's terms. God is the one. God is the one who establishes the standards of justice. He says, call on God, intercede. Call on God for mercy and protection. It says, live a life of discernment, discerning truth from lies, even in the holy places. Take what you hear and wrestle with it and allow the word of God to nestle deep in your heart. And what will this lead to? He says, well, it leads to abundant life. Verses 16 and 17 
we know, and as I said, I'm going to unpack that more next week as part of that message. But all of a sudden, there's incredible grief and death on mass where there'd be wailing and weeping everywhere in every street, every farm, every vineyard. And we know that while there is this incredible invitation that the abundant life he's referring to is one that is eternal. Because these people had, there was every chance that they were going to perish in the physical sense. So the abundant life that we talked about before in John 10.10, 10, the abundant life here is that of an eternal life. It also leads to Yahweh's presence. This consistent presence of God in our life. And we know this even more to be true with the Holy Spirit. And finally, mercy. He holds back the wrath that we deserve. In Romans 6, the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So my friends, I invite you to reorientate your understanding of repentance. To go after God. To live a faithful life. To fight the battles now so that the generations to come won't be slaughtered because of our unfaithfulness. Prayer, seeking God, seeking his will, seeking his face, seeking his character. And faithfulness is more than just attending church on a Sunday. So I encourage you to have conversations with pastoral team, with leadership. Allow the, whatever work the Holy Spirit is doing to actually lead to life transformation. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. God, we thank you so much for your offer of salvation. God, we know that in and of ourselves, we do not deserve any of this, yet we stand here today being able to cry out, Abba, Father, because of what you've done. We sit in such a privileged position, God, even compared to these Israelites, God, because we've, we've seen the manifestation of Jesus Christ, because we have your Holy Spirit with us, Lord. And I pray that, that with our lives, God, we would paint a glorious picture of who you are. That we will be a people who are faithful. We'll be a people who are righteous. And we'll be a people who are repentant, God, I pray. And I also want to just lift up the next generation, God. We know that even during COVID, it's just hit so hard. So we just ask right now, Holy Spirit, that, that you would just do a work in the hearts of young people, God. That you would draw them back to yourself. That you would equip churches like this one and others, God, to, to really minister to generations to come. We're sorry, God, for the, for the times where our unfaithfulness has had repercussions that we may not even see. And we choose, God, this morning to once again reorientate our heart and our life towards you. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.